All right, welcome back. This is part two of our three-part series with Brent Fortune. We're live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cat and Cloud podcast. I'm Chris Baca, sitting here with everybody's teenage dream, Mr. Jared Truby. And across the table from us is Mr. Brent Fortune. Hello, Brent Fortune. Meow. Hello. Brent Fortune, you've been in coffee longer than anybody I possibly could have ever known. That's weird. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now and how you got started in coffee. Right now, I'm living in living in uh, Southern California, where I was bo- born and raised oh. for the most part. So there's like levels. There's when you talked about you know giving positive feedback or finding something positive in the score sheet. I feel like there's another sub level to that, to where understanding and maybe being an advocate for different rule changes, understanding how coffee evolves. And I think of like the the face melter shot mm-hmm. in terms of like. You know Jared's performances, the longer extraction yeah. extractions than were technically allowed by the score sheet, yeah, um, and kind of pushing for those things on the baristas yes. end. Mm-hmm. And the and the those I always felt like the score sheets were the rules were a couple steps behind where the industry was at the time, <laughs> and it and it got difficult to. We had to keep pushing for. Um, you know, al- making allowances for the new things that baristas were figuring out and doing to make to push coffee forward mm. yeah. the face melter yeah the face melter yeah. talk about the face melter just so people understand good golly so at verve coffee when we started on 2007 we uh we were trying to put together an espresso blend for street level which is like the the espresso that verve uses for everything and we were struggling and then all of a sudden this sean white um who was we were just throwing together all these blends he threw together five beans and we had pulled millions of shots, and all of a sudden, he tried. <laughs> it was actually kind of an accident, but the shot was just really tight. It means it's running really slowly, so it was just dripping really, really slow. And and typically, a specialty coffee uh, extraction of espresso is twenty to thirty seconds, and it's like whatever an ounce to an ounce and a half. Well, this thing was was running at like forty two seconds, and it was like less than a quarter ounce of fluid in the in the coffee cup. And somehow, it truly is a miracle because this never happens. It tasted really good. It tasted like a shot of syrupy fudge chocolate, and it was very much out of the norm. So we called it a face melter because it took forever, and it was like, it was also like four grams more coffee than you would use in a portafilter to make a shot of espresso. So it was just like, it was completely out of the box. It shouldn't have made sense, and then it did, and it worked. And and Brent basically advocated. He's like, if this tastes good, these guys should be able to use it in a competition because. What's yeah. good is what's good, no matter what the rules have stated in the past. We need to go with what's truly good, not what the rules say should be good. Like, why punish people for pulling an extraction that's 34 seconds instead of 30, or 44 seconds instead of 30 when it's delicious? Yeah. Right. If you if you talk to the people that helped create the WBC, they the intention of creating that competition was to help improve the standard of coffee globally. Mm-hmm. And so they, when they put together the rules originally, they were trying to create a structure that um, had some basic, you know, do's and don'ts around how to uh, espresso should be made, what a cappuccino should should be like, and um, how to how to extract those things correctly. And they put some time limits there, and they were they were using some um, things that were created by the SEA and the SEA. E, the Specialty Coffee Association of America, and then there's a, a sister organization that that governs Europe, and they they never intended to um, those to be absolutes, mm. and and it um, it's good that the you know as the competition evolved they started to um, 
allow for more uh, experimentation because the, the, the whole intention of the competition was to make coffee better, mm-hmm. and the baristas started to you know, figure out different, different tricks and different practices, and that was part of what was fun about traveling around the world and going to different countries and seeing what was happening in different places is, is being able to bring those things back and share, and, and that's why everyone came to the, the USBC, because they wanted to see what everyone was doing and, right. and what was new and what was different and take those things back and like experiment and play and continue to evolve coffee as a as an industry totally i mean getting together at all those events is truly something that like it re-inspires anybody who's in coffee no matter what the lowest level at the highest level you're going to be re-inspired every time you go to one of these things because you're going to talk to all the people who are at the heads of the industry who are thinking about x y and z and and it's going to get you thinking about things and and it's just amazing the collaboration is awesome i have a question though did you ever hold a position on the scaa or did you have a position title for judging so they had they had um there was a committee in the SEA that was the, the 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 SEA had several committees that were made up of volunteers, and one of them was specifically about the uh, U.S. Barista Championship. Okay. So there was um, initially I was just sort of a member of that committee, and then there was a judges subcommittee. Mm-hmm. So it was like myself and Marcus Bonnie. Yeah, Great Marcus guy. Bonnie were kind of the and Scott Connery as well, mm-hmm. and we were like the heads of the judges committee so it was our job to make sure that the judges were getting trained correctly that there was a uh, a program to train them Mm -hmm. and that you know all the people we were putting forward to be judges were at least had some experience and knew what they were doing and and we kind of signed off that yeah these people are experienced enough and have been through a training course and they passed some a series of tests to be able to be judges gotcha man and then that rolled. That eventually rolled into doing some stuff with the um, the WBC. And and thank you to the organizers of the Mexican Barista Championships because they would they kept looking to the U.S. competition and um, coming up to actually judge in the U.S. because it was because they were they were they couldn't get that experience in their own country or even in Central America at the time. Yeah. So they were coming up to North America or to the U.S. to judge with us and then they started asking me to come to mexico and train their judges and as a result of that i started interacting with some of the 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 people in charge of the wbc Mm -hmm. judges stuff and then um got to uh work with those guys and and take some of the work we had done in the u.s and and translate it into the the world championships and a crazy number of invitations allowed me to um, get to travel around the world, like teaching these workshops and judging competitions. Pretty enjoyable, yeah? I can't believe it. Yeah, it's, I never imagined, you know, I would go to Iceland or New Zealand or Japan or Nicaragua or Guatemala to uh, teach people about coffee. Yeah. Or to taste coffees made by baristas in those countries. Okay, so... I'm going to back way up because I'm an avid Disney fan. Yep. Weird. You guys ever know about that? Okay, I'm more I'm more of actually a Disneyland fan, uh, as per if you ever listen to the podcast that uh, Patrick uh, Melroy, who's helping us out here of town, asked me a lot of Disney questions. I'm actually less of a Disney fan, even though I love the films. Those questions were hard. They were actually hard. (laughs) Yeah, like three out of (laughs) ten. They were hard. But I am a huge Disneyland fan, and I can answer a lot of those questions. Anyways, okay, backing up. 
you worked for the Disney company. I did. Which I've always wondered about um, yeah. both you and just the company. So yeah. can you tell me some stuff about that? What yeah. you maybe learned? So I um, I knew that I wanted to, I like you, I mm-hmm. grew up going to Disneyland. Right. And um, growing up in Southern California, that was like the thing you did. Right. And uh, my grandmother would take me there and I would, you know, I would just even like getting close to Disneyland on the five, I would get goosebumps just thinking oh, about Oh yeah, that's like the thing. Like in the parking lot. <laughs> so I would be true. Like, I couldn't control myself. <laughs> it's real. So I wanted to work for that company, um, but I found myself in business school um, with a marketing degree and um, uh, I kept like, I basically like um, got in touch with some people that were working in the consumer products division in Burbank, and I I did a couple projects in school. Um, in business school, you have to do a lot of like um, case studies and stuff mm-hmm. like this. And so I kept using I used Disney a couple times as an example, and I would like use that as an excuse to talk to people that worked at Disney and sort of get to know them. Totally. And then I managed somehow to turn that into a job right out of right out of college, working for them. And it was, it was looking back, it was such a good experience, but it was like such a corporate monkey right. job. Like I worked in a cube in an office building mm-hmm. and it was a great place to start a career because they were so good at um, communication and, mm. uh, you know, the, the customer experience mm-hmm. was so important in that company right. and, and creating a, a, you know, it was all about creating an entertaining um environment even in a retail situation right and um and the subject matter was really fun and i kind of had grown up uh being a fan of disney and so it was it was beneficial for them to have like kind of a disney nerd working for the company because you connected to it already you understood where it wanted to go yeah Mm -hmm. and then i actually went after working in burbank for um like two two and a half years yeah they sent me to london to live and work there for almost two years. <laughs> Whoa! So that was a pretty that was a pretty sweet gig. How's the coffee in London? You know, I wasn't. It was before I was in into coffee. Um, w- w- what I know about about coffee in London is it started to change around the same time. You know, sort of the West Coast USA started to change, and there's some excellent coffee in London that I'm pretty sure when I lived there there. W- there's nothing even close to that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's come up a lot. I mean, James Hoffman, Square Mile, there's a bunch of places over there. Yeah. Has been. What's his name? Steve. Uh, Steve, Steve, that's Layton. right. Great guy. Yeah, yeah, Steve's tight. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of great coffee over there now. I'd love to get over there and try, try some coffee. We have to go. Man. Somehow. Someday. Someday, someday. we're going to get out of here. So what, what you're saying, Brent, <laughs> is, if, is if, Chris, if Chris and I ever start a coffee company, you can get us into Disneyland, is what you're saying. Because that's what? the long-term dream of mine, uh, is to have a, some sort of coffee in Disneyland. Jared's going to put espresso in a pod. <laughs> It's going to be the it's, bomb. It'd be borderline impossible. There's so many hoops I'm sure to jump they're through. So, they're so tied to big companies with deep pockets that Joffrey's. pay a lot of money to be in their space. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, got espresso at Disneyland. Yeah, you did. I did it. Chris did it. I did it. I do it every time. A couple creams, a couple sugars, a little yeah. ice. I go cream, no sugar, and I was just like, you know, happy as I could be. I mean, the guy serving you coffee was happy as can be, too. He was pretty happy. They no, do do service well. No one's angry. You taught them that, didn't you, Brent? There's people the who when, don't do, <laughs> and there's people who do do. <laughs> when they do do. Um, one of my 
one of my best experiences with you, that Jared had nothing to do with coffee, was one time Jared and Brian Wilbur and I went to Disneyland oh, man, and we oh, no. raged. We went like hard. S- we must have been there twelve or fourteen hours, and we just like <laughs> didn't stop. That's true. And we just went like so hard all day. Oh. We like barely stopped to eat. Like I remember, oh, yeah. we were walking around turkey, leg turkey legs, yeah. eating because we didn't want to take time out. There was no chance. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, and that's how I used to be too. Now I have a season pass, so I can keep it a little. And kids, so <laughs> I literally can't. But it used to be one of those things where if I got to go to Disneyland, it was going to be the one time that yeah, year. Yeah. So I was like, everybody. Had to make the most of every second. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've got this place memorized. Here's the plan. <laughs> we're going to do this, all this in a row. And then we're going to jump across to California. And we're going to do all that in a row. And then we're going to come back for this. And mm. if we want to eat, it's going to be turkey legs, churros, and uh, frozen lemonade. Nice. Mm. Go F yourself if you think we're going to sit down for anything but sitting on a ride. <laughs> Pirates is the longest sit we're going to have here. No chance. <laughs> yeah. I remember we went with you and your friends from Chico were there the same weekend. Oh, and man. we hung out for the first half of the day, and then I don't know where the fuck Jerry went. He was just gone. <laughs> I was like, I got stuff to do, I bro. Can hang. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're on my back hurts, and I was like, I don't care. Later, we're <laughs> friends still. I was like, where's Jerry? <laughs> I don't know. He's out. Yeah, he's doing more rides than us. Oh, so deep. Yeah, I have a plan of attack in there. It's scary. Yeah, it's less so now. But if you want, if you ever want a tour, if you want to get your money's worth, and you haven't been to Disneyland, yeah, hit me up. Yeah. I'll go with you, and yeah. I will make sure you ride every ride, and you don't waste your time walking to places you don't need to go. <laughs> that could be an additional revenue stream. You could monetize that. I used to dream of doing that. Tours of like, Disneyland with Jared Truby. Let me maximize your efficiency in the Magical Kingdom I promise for just $100, that. plus you pay for my ticket. <laughs> yeah. Now we're talking about now we're cooking stuff. with gas. It's a, we... You're a Disney Uber. Uber. I am. <laughs> Disney Uber guy. Duber. I'm a... <laughs> Dude. Oh, my gosh. Okay, what? so- Yep. Ah, same man. I was going to ask, you spent so many years involved with the SCAA and judging and competition. Yeah. Why ultimately did you stop doing that? It's, um, it got to, you know, once you've sat, once you've sat at the table of the WBC a couple times and you've sat, you've sat there the like final round, it's hard for, other competitions to have that same sort of energy and vibe mm-hmm. and y- you literally are like tasting coffees from the six of the best baristas in the world doing the most innovative interesting things and and once you've done that once or twice it can be really difficult to go back to like a regional or even a national competition and feel the same level of engagement also, you know, I I've always had I've always been challenged by kind of attention span issues and, and getting sort of bored with stuff. Mm-hmm. So I need to be, you know, I need new stimulus. Yep. And and once you've literally sat through hundreds and hundreds of rounds of competition, it stops being um, fresh and new. And I I there were moments where I noticed myself no longer able to pay attention at the table and right. i was like i can't i can't keep doing this because it's not fair it's not fair to the to competitor the, barista, yeah. the competitor to to be sort of sitting there and and you know oh i saw something shiny over there what's that and like mm-hmm. they're talking and i was like oh what did they just say crap like, <laughs> you, you can't uh you can't continue to sort of be there and judge if you can't stay focused on what's happening i think that's important though i mean there's something to be said about maybe that in general and uh you know competitions are important and they're great and uh i mean patrick and i have talked about this recently chris and i talk about this all the time 
the competition for somebody who doesn't know coffee is tough to follow. Yeah. And even if you're so, I mean, you were about as deep into coffee as you could get, and still you found yourself bored. It's also you also would like you basically would like dedicate your body to that that week or that yeah. weekend because it's it was such a a, a gut busting and taxing thing when you're ingesting all that all that espresso and all mm-hmm. that milk and all that whatever is in the signature drinks you would end up you know you, you were so exhausted from doing that all day like right. you couldn't go out and party and rage with everybody because you were you know you wanted to sleep and then you would wake up at like three, four in the morning, and you couldn't go back to sleep. Yep. And so after three, four, five days of that, Ugh. you're just you're just destroyed. And it and you it. Are. And it's then insane. you come away from those, you know, a weekend in or like five, seven days in in like London or Denmark or someplace, and you're like, I didn't get to hang out with any of my friends because mm-hmm. all day long I was in this room where I was I was responsible for filling out score sheets, and the only time I would come out was when I could judge these competitors which was amazing but mm-hmm. i couldn't talk to anyone and i couldn't i also there also was a um some some lines some rules about you know not hanging out with the the baristas and the competitors yep. and that got old because it was like man i can't hang out with my friends and you know i don't get to see them that often and we're all in this amazing place in this amazing city yep and by being locked in the judges room like uh you know i i also, I found myself sitting at the table, and you you can't judge people that you have any sort of um, relationship with, yep. working or personal. And so, I would be like eliminated from so many of the best baristas because they were they were my friends or my yeah, buddies. Totally. And I was like, wow, this isn't fun. Like, right. All the all the cool people I want to be judging, mm-hmm. I can't judge because I'm you know I'm their friend, and I would rather be their friend than be their judge. Yeah. So yeah. That's tough. So do you think there's a way that, okay, I mean, obviously this isn't simple, but like Chris and I's big pet peeve with competition sometimes, right? Is that it's kind of boring. Yeah. Which I mean, it, I understand that maybe it needs to be. Do you think, do you have any thoughts on ways that they could make it more exciting? I, I, you know, I don't, I think they've, I think that's been explored as much as it it could be. Mm -hmm. And I think that other, there are other competitions out there I think the AeroPress competition is an is an example that mm-hmm. is. Um, also, I think the Cup Tasters competition That's is true. an example. Yeah, those competitions are so simple in yeah. their structure and their rules, and it's so easy to explain to someone what's happening mm-hmm. that they're much more engaging in terms of somebody that doesn't understand the intricacies of coffee. Let me get stony with you. Yeah. All right. Oh. So oh, no. Are you, are you gonna first? No, go. Yeah, okay, yeah, go. So, okay. Let's see this. I'm a surfer, right? Mm. Here we are, surf guy. Surfers surf their waves whatever they get Surfers they get points per, per wave yeah. right so there's x amount of judges five or so right yeah they all get a score you throw out the highest and the lowest yeah and you average it out yeah what if we did a similar thing with that but with live scoring yeah. so you know the problem right that they have the head judges right they need to make sure everybody's calibrated right so you throw out the highest score and the lowest score yeah. and in theory you yeah. are you could essentially take all the scores and average it into and then fire it up live so that it's like Oh my gosh, he scored a yeah. ten yep. or whatever. You know what I'm and saying? That's why the Arrow Press and the Cup Tasters because it it is it's actually live scoring and you know immediately Man. 
what the results are. That's exciting. And so the audience is engaged. Yeah, it's like dot or no yeah. dot. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, Maybe. even figure skating is more exciting because you get to see right after how well they did. And figure skating is not that exciting. Yeah. No. Right. The outfits are amazing, though. You just lost Wisconsin. Oh, <laughs> oh. Wisconsin. I was kidding. Hockey rules. I, yeah. <laughs> and Badgers, right? Sure. I feel like people have talked about live scoring for years. Yeah. I mean, I, I James feel like talked it's about been attempted somewhere. It probably has been attempted somewhere. It's hard to process all the numbers quickly enough to get them into a live. Like even if it was, there there were conversations about like an iPad doing the scorekeeping on a on an iPad or an iPhone, and built you know people even built apps that would make that possible. Yeah, and it was too controversial because it was like, well, you know, we don't we we can't we don't have a. a a level of calibration with the judges yet where we can mm-hmm. allow that to happen. Yeah. Let's, but like, that's a, that's a sort of silly excuse. Cause it, it is possible. Well, cause I let's, think let's talk about that. Let's talk about calibration. So I'm, I've judged a couple times, never on the level that you have, just mostly regional, yeah. but you know, you go out there as a judge, you score everybody mm. and then you go into the back after mm. the competitor's done and you calibrate and everything can change yeah. by a lot. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was... How does that change? Um, so there's... For those who don't know, you'll have four sensory judges who are tasting the drinks that the barista is preparing. And then you have a head judge who is kind of charged with calibration. And this is where... It's been different every time I've judged. So this is where it's been kind of foggy for me is where you go in the back and you calibrate as a group and talk about what you tasted. And you kind of review scores. And the head judge is kind of pushing and pulling everyone to like... Okay, you gave this a three. Like yeah. you he's know, tasted why? every coffee. He's by tasted the way. every coffee. It's like yeah. maybe it's a four. You yeah. gave a two. Right. Maybe you need to pull that up. Right. Maybe you need to bring that down. And scores can change by up to one or two points. And it doesn't sound like much, but certain sections of the score sheet are what they call multipliers. So yeah. espresso is like a multiplier. Yeah. So if you're on a zero to six and you get three and that's multiplied by four, if it changes by one point, your score changes by a lot. Yeah. Yep. Um yeah, I mean, what what has been your experience with that? What do you think about that it's, process? It's you know that that threw me off too the first time that uh, I experienced that, and and it's it was one of those things that like I didn't really know this happened, mm. and um, it came down to you know that it came down to the head judge sort of uh, the the their level of confidence and and you as a judge too the the best judges were the ones that were really confident in their scores mm-hmm. and if a head judge challenged you and said you know why was that a 4 if you could rattle off or, or a better example is why was that a 2 and if you could rattle off really quickly a really reasonable explanation for why that was a 2 if you're a good judge and you have an answer the head judge will support you mm-hmm. if you waffle on that answer or you don't have a good answer then the head judge can sort of push you towards well you know what i experienced was more of a three or four and here's why and if and if the judge can't sort of combat that or or can't stand behind their score then that's the head judge's job is to make sure that when you get into the situation with the barista and they're and they're asking you or even worse their coach is asking you why did you give a two if you don't have a solid answer for that you're screwed like you're going to lose their respect and you're going to lose you know respect among your peers mm-hmm. yeah it's a lot and, of pressure yeah and depending on how aggressive or not aggressive your head judge is yeah it can kind of change a lot so i had experiences where you know oh why was that a two uh i don't know okay well whatever 
it's yeah. fine. Or yeah. you know, you would yeah. totally get grilled yeah. into. So there are calibration issues. I do you feel think, like a lot of it comes down to money? Because in my mind, I feel like a lot of it does, and I don't want to hijack this thing. But money in money in what way? Uh, in the sense of that you're holding this competition, which is supposed to be the best of the best. Like it's supposed to represent specialty coffee at its peak. But you have these people judging who are basically volunteers. Yeah. They're volunteering their yeah. own time. They don't have yeah. the energy and resources to put in really intense formal training. So you take yeah. what you can get and yeah. you go from yeah. there. Yeah, it, that was always that was always a challenge because the the best judges were were especially at, at a trade show like the SCAA or the SEAE in Europe were so busy doing talks or panels or mm -hmm. conducting classes or working at some amazing booth you couldn't get them to be judges because they didn't have the time to sit through a two-day workshop plus be available for three or four days mm -hmm. because they were committed to other other things and so you're left with the people that have a have done this before so they know what they're getting into and and yeah, like you said, it's it's a it's a volunteer. So it's people that either have a company backing them and paying for their trip and their hotel and their meals to be able to judge, um, and they have the wherewithal to you know they have the the, the time commitment to do that. Yeah, I I'm, I remember for me, I did it a couple times. And they're like, yeah, you should come back and, and do it again. You're really good at this. And yeah. I was like, T I can't afford it. Like, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's no it's way. Expensive like, proposition. If you're working on a, you know, if you were like how I was or how Jared was, you're yeah. working on a barista's wage, which yeah. isn't very much, yeah. which we'll mm -hmm. probably talk about more soon. Um, you just can't do these. You can't afford to be gone for your job yeah. from for seven days yeah. and pay for a hotel and pay for food. And, and then you can't you can't start compensating judges for being judges because then it changes the equation, and then and then yep. things get dicey really fast. Right. Yeah. It's a really interesting situation. I mean, Cause they're doing the best they can. That's they're doing for sure. the best they can with what they have. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and it definitely works. So I mean, major props to them. It's just man. It's still respected. You know the the WBC and and the USBC too, and and in other countries, so, some countries there's so much politics in the competition, and and for sure the US competition has had some politics, but it, it's not nearly at the level of some other countries, which I won't name, where hmm. you know the roasters get it gets really vicious, and like who's hosting and who's got how many competitors in the mix, mm. and. Um, you know who the sponsors are, and it and it, it it there was crazy politics behind uh, some you know some competitions, and and um, it it just it goes to show how important those titles and and championships can be because it can it can um, translate into a revenue stream for the the roaster or the business or even the barista who's competing. Right. right? Yeah, I mean, Chris experienced some of that, which we'll talk about maybe another day. And when he went and he uh, trained the champion of Colombia, I mean, there was some interesting politics that oh. happened there as well. Oh, it was insane. Yeah. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> but I mean, you know. Oh, ha, ha. No, <laughs> oh, ha, ha. But that's real. It got very real. It was, it was very real. Congratulations on finishing episode two with Brent Portion. Check back in for part three. I'm Jared Truby, and this is Chris Baca, and you are listening to Cat, Cat and, and Cloud. Cloud.